calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hello, welcome to Strong Sense of Place. In each episode, we focus on one destination and discuss what makes it different than any other place on Earth. Then we recommend five books we love that took us there on the page. I'm Melissa Jolan. I'm David Humphreys. We're going around the world one great read at a time. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to Strong Sense of Place. Today we get curious about the theater. Come on along and listen to the lullaby of Broadway. Dipperay and Hadi Hoo, the lullaby of Broadway. The rumble of the subway train. If you're listening to this on launch day, the Tony Awards are coming up. They will be on Sunday, June 11th. Ariana DeVos will host. The Tonys are always a good time. I think it's because everybody in that show knows how to work a stage. Every time I think about the Tonys, I think of Lin-Manuel Miranda standing on the stage and saying, love is love is love is love. And I get tears in my eyes, just like I did right now. <laughs> Today in Two Truths and a Lie, I'm going to tell you about a one-of-a-kind theater prop that was 70 years in the making. Hmm. And then we'll talk about five books we love. I've got a novel that I did not expect to love, and I couldn't put it down. I read it in one afternoon. I've got a book that might help you write your own musical. Oh, I'm all in on that. <laughs> but first, Mel's going to bring us up to speed with the Theater 101. For the 101 today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of theater so we know how we got from, say, a Greek chorus to Hamilton. Right. And then we're going to embark on an imaginary international theater festival. Oh, that's exciting. The need for humans to tell stories and probably add gestures and funny voices to them yeah. goes way, way, way back to the beginning <laughs> of humans. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have language so we can tell stories to each other. Exactly. Make some sense of the world. Yeah. For the first formal theater experience. We would go to Greece around the 6th century BCE in Athens. I have no faith in your promises. I cannot tell whether you believe in the old gods still or have found some new standard of morality. But you broke your oath to me. You to teach essential that. life lessons, performers put on tragedy plays oh, at religious festivals, so which does not sound like as much fun as, say, The Sound of Music. Right. But you got to start not. somewhere. Yeah. And there is an important idea that those early Greeks gave us, that there should be a dedicated space for public storytelling. There was a stage. There was a defined area where that happened, and there was a clear distinction between the audience and the performers. If you Google the history of theater, all of the narratives start with Greece and then plow through the Western theater tradition. So next up, we have the morality the plays of the Middle Ages. His mind is on fleshly lusts and his treasure. And great pain it shall cause... Shakespeare. But soft. What light through yonder window breaks? It is the East. And Juliet is the sun. Baroque theater and opera. Oh, 
The gaslit Victorian era in England. And the cash be on the hop, homie little game to stop. You must get up every early in the morning. And then musical spectaculars in the United States in the 20th century. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking, but now God knows that it ain't God's. Good authors And that's all accurate yep. and all pretty fabulous. Each of those periods gave us innovations. So the medieval morality plays, instead of being performed in Latin, were performed in the vernacular language so that everyone could understand them. Everyone can feel the guilt at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. Baroque and Victorian theater both made huge leaps in technology with special effects like trapdoors that let people pop up and disappear, elaborately painted sets, the actors dressed in costumes that differentiated their characters. Yeah. There were musical interludes and lighting to create mood. The Italian Renaissance invented the sitcom. Exactly. Yeah. And then musicals. It's a musical, a musical, and nothing's as amazing as a musical. I know some people don't like musicals. I don't understand these people. (laughs) Singing, dancing, humor, drama, all mashed together. Right. What does it take to entertain you? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so this is all the history of Western theater. Yeah. Along the way, while we were all doing that in Europe and the United States, countries like Japan, China, Indonesia, and India were also developing onstage storytelling. Sure. Every culture that's ever existed has a storytelling tradition that eventually gets more and more sort of codified and formal. I love this quote from a professor at the Tisch School of Arts at NYU. She said, Many of the cultures of the world have developed their own forms of theater, and it would be a mistake to think that they haven't influenced mainstream Broadway theater because there would be no Lion King if director Julie Taymor had not gone to Jakarta and learned about shadow puppets. I know, it's almost like we're all in this together, huh? <laughs> we're all in this together Once we know that we are At a typical theater festival, yep. acting troops from all over converge in one place to perform. Since our imaginations can take us anywhere we want to go, I'm going to take us on a traveling theater festival tour around the globe and through time. Whoa. Okay. Starting in England with a fellow you might not have heard of, a humble playwright named Willie Shakespeare. wide and universal theater presents more woeful pageants than the scene wherein we play in. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven He was born ages. in 1564 in Stratford-on-Avon. By the time he was in his 30s, he was putting on his plays at the Globe Theatre in London. Obscure works like Hamlet, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, right. Othello, Macbeth. In total, he wrote 38 plays. There are comedies, like A Midsummer Night's Dream and Twelfth Night, History plays, like Henry IV and Richard III, and the tragedies I already mentioned. If we were going to see, say, The Tempest in 1611 at the Globe, we'd go in the spring or summer because it was an open-air theater. The outside was wood and thatched walls, but inside, the stage was open to the sky. The posh people sat in galleries that lined the circular theater, but as commoners... We'd be in the pit on the floor. It's more fun there anyway. It is more fun there. Forget about being polite. The audience was raucous. People ate and drank and socialized throughout the show. But that didn't mean that they weren't paying attention. It was immersive and moving. It was a communal experience that connected the audience and the actors. In my head, it was kind of like sitting on the couch with a loud family watching television. (laughs) Exactly. So that's Shakespeare in London. Yeah. Now we're going to leap forward in time to the early 20th century and sail across the Atlantic to New York. We'll jump in a taxi at Pier 90 and head to Broadway. We could have time traveled to 1943 because then we could see the premiere of Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. 
1975 to attend an opening night of a chorus line. Yeah. Once, singular sensation, every little step he takes. Once, but I'm taking us to September 22nd, 1964, and the premiere of Fiddler on the Roof at the Imperial Theater. The entrance to the theater is on 45th Street, and it's fairly unassuming. It's three stories of sand-colored stone, and at the time, it had an Art Deco sign that says Imperial in capital letters. The poster for the show doesn't even include pictures. It's just text. It has the name Zero Mistel above the title. It's very utilitarian looking. Yeah. But inside, inside is magic. Because once we're in our seats, the house lights go down, and Tevia, the hero of our story, played by the legendary Zero, walks onto the stage and says this. We stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word, tradition. Fiddler on the Roof ran for more than 3,000 performances at the Imperial and won nine Tony Awards. 3,000 performances. That's a very long time. Yeah. It's been revived on Broadway five times, and almost every one was nominated for multiple Tonys. That show is amazing because before the intermission, it's sort of a celebration. And after the intermission, the entire cast is just trying to break your heart so hard. (laughs) And succeeding. And it works. Yeah, it works. Very well done. It's like Hamilton in that way. But it's so cathartic, too. Like, you feel so cleansed. And even though the second half is very sad, it also has so much humanity and, and hope at the end. Like, you feel like even though everything's not going to be perfect, it's going to be some kind of okay. Yeah. For our next stop on our tour, we head south to Brazil for what I was going to say is a completely different kind of theater. But as we discuss it, I think we're going to see some connections underlying the whole thing. Okay. It's called the Theater of the Oppressed. This is an interactive form of theater started in Latin America in the late 1960s by Augusto Boel. He was a devoted theater dude and political activist, and he wanted to break down the barriers between actors and the audience. He wanted to make spectators into spec actors. And he did this by inviting the audience to stop performances and suggest different actions or words (laughs) for the characters on stage. Wow. Okay. Which may be a little bit like the early days of the Globe Theater in London. Right. I don't know. (laughs) Although a little bit more directed. Yeah. Acting companies that put on Theater of the Oppressed now have it a little bit more formalized. Usually the first part of the show is a story told as a traditional play, and it's usually depicting someone being oppressed. So it might be a story about a woman being sexually harassed by her boss or a gay kid being discriminated against. And then in the second half of the show, audience members go up on stage and interact with the actors to change the story. It's like social and political improv. Yeah. Augusta Boel called it a rehearsal for reality. It's a way to get the audience to have a deeper emotional connection to what they're seeing and to develop their empathy and bring them into the performance. I can imagine that if it was done well, it'd be very compelling. For our last stop, we are heading west across the Pacific to see ancient puppet theater. Oh. We could have gone to Russia, India, or Prague for elaborate marionette shows, but instead we're going to Indonesia to see a performance of Wayang Puppet Theater. Wayang is also called shadow puppetry. It dates from around the 800s. So between Greek theater and the medieval morality plays is when this was being developed. The puppets are made from buffalo hide that's intricately carved into characters. And then they're attached to rods so that puppeteers can make them move and dance. Yeah. 
and the puppets perform behind a translucent screen that's backlit so the audience just sees the shadows. There's music and dialogue and sometimes the color of the light changes. And when it's done well, it is shockingly hypnotic and emotional. Yeah, I've seen a little bit of it and it looks like illustrated silhouettes moving. Yes. The details that are carved into the puppets really pop because the light shines through, even if it's just a tiny little hole. Yeah. And the skill of the puppeteers really gives personality to the puppets. It helps that the stories are usually epic tales of adventure with heroes, gods, and demons. I watched a TEDx presentation of the myth of Ramayana that had more than 50 puppeteers and dancers and musicians. It is amazing. Wow. I'll put a link to that in show notes. Okay. And with this performance of Wayang, we come full circle. From the storytelling of Greece, through the life lessons of Shakespeare, the exuberance of musicals, and the power of theater to help us understand our human condition in a different way. Are you ready for two truths and a lie? I will do my best. I'm about to say three statements. Two of them are true. One of them is not. Mel doesn't know which one is the lie. So, statement one. I think we all know the musical Cats. You know the name. You've heard the song. But until you've seen it live, you haven't experienced the magic of Cats. I was obsessed with the idea of Cats when I was a little kid. The musical? Yes, that just seemed like so much fun to me. The costumes are really amazing. I remember that. Cats is based on a perfectly good book of poems by T.S. Eliot. Andrew Lloyd Webber got his hands on that, and it became one of the longest-running shows in Broadway history. Millions of people have seen that show. There is a theater group in Japan that has been performing Cats continuously since 1983. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Despite that show having no plot and only one tune that I can remember, (laughs) all of that happened. In 2019, Cats became a weak movie with a fantastic cast. That cast was amazing. Yeah. Taylor Swift, Judi Dench, Idris Elba, Ian McKellen, they all participated in an event that The Guardian described as a career low for all involved. (laughs) Maybe it was fun on set. Maybe, maybe. The visual effects were so bad that they were updated and released while the movie was still in theaters. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The one I remember is that you could see Judi Dench's wedding ring. Yeah. She had a human hand and they took that out and made her a cat hand. (laughs) Whoops. Dame. She's a dame. Yeah. That movie was said to have lost over $100 million. So here's a statement. The movie version of Cats was so bad that it drove Andrew Lloyd Webber to get an emotional support dog. (laughs) Statement two. So there's a superstition surrounding Shakespeare's Macbeth. It is considered unlucky to say Macbeth in a theater. It should be referred to as the Scottish play, if you're Mm going to say it. Here's the statement. The curse of Macbeth is based on historical fact. Hmm. Third statement. I'm sure you all know about Shakespeare's Hamlet and the scene where he is speaking to a skull. Hamlet talks to a skull. To be or not to be? No. Alas, poor Yorick. Alas, poor Yorick. In 2008, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company unknowingly performed Hamlet with a human skull. Whoa. I played Ophelia in Hamlet once. You did? I had a death scene. (laughs) Mel had... Mel had her debut of Ophelia in Prague in a one-person show of Hamlet where the actor who was playing Hamlet got people in the audience to perform the other roles. And no one knew what we were doing except for us. We just got a little scrap of paper with instructions and like maybe a few lines that we were going to say. And I had to get yelled at by Hamlet and then die And unbeknownst to me, what happened next is that everyone gathered around me and sang. Yeah, I had to sing at Mel's funeral. It was a really weird experience, but super cool. Yeah, it was an amazing show. And it made Hamlet really come to life. Very visceral. Yeah. I finally felt like I understood Hamlet. It didn't seem melodramatic and over the top. It felt very real and raw. Yeah, it took Shakespeare out of the head and put it in the heart. 100%. Which is frequently a problem with Shakespeare for me personally. So those three statements, 
Let's go through them in order. Number one, the movie version of Cats was so bad that it drove Andrew Lloyd Webber to get an emotional support dog. I want that to be false because although his music is not my particular cup of tea, I wouldn't want anyone to have mental health issues because of Hollywood. (laughs) It's true. Oh, poor Andrew Lloyd Webber. (laughs) In an interview with Variety in 2021, Andrew Lloyd Webber was asked about the movie and he said, Cats was off the scale all wrong. There wasn't really any understanding of why the music ticked at all. I saw it and thought, Oh, God, no. (laughs) It was the first time in my 70-odd years on this planet that I went out and bought a dog. So the one good thing to come out of it was my little Havanese puppy. Yeah. He told another story in that interview. At some point, he wanted to travel from his home in London to New York and take his dog. So he wrote to the airline and he wrote, I'm emotionally damaged and I must have this therapy dog with me. And the airline replied with... Can you prove that you need him? And Weber wrote back and said, Have you seen what Hollywood did with my musical Cats? (laughs) Amazing. And he got a note back from the airline. No doctor's report required. Have a nice flight. (laughs) (laughs) Making lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. So statement two, the curse of Macbeth is based on a historical fact. True. That is true. There are a few theories about the origin of the curse. The first is that Shakespeare used real spells and incantations in the play and that evil language is somehow coded into the show itself. Obviously. Obviously. Sir Patrick Stewart has spoken about his theory of the curse, which is that it's a dark play, as in the lights are frequently down, and it's easy to walk into stuff when it's dark. (laughs) (laughs) Just general clumsiness? Yeah. But a more likely origin takes us back a few hundred years. Historically, every town in England used to have at least one theater. If a play wasn't drawing, it would be replaced with a crowd favorite. And Macbeth has historically been a very popular show. It was frequently bought on to replace shows that weren't doing well. So it's possible that the curse began when someone heard a local mediocre playwright say, don't you dare say the name of that play in here. (laughs) I love that. When his own show was threatened. So good. Yeah. But the dark magic of the show is more fun to talk about. Also, magical or not, most of us have seen some fuel for the fire for Macbeth's curse. At the 94th Academy Awards, Chris Rock walked onto stage of the Dolby Theater and said, Denzel, Macbeth loved it. What? Referring to Denzel Washington's performance in the movie The Tragedy of Macbeth, and less than two minutes later, Rock was slapped by Will Smith. Yeah, he was. Yeah. He brought down the curse of Macbeth on himself. (laughs) He really did. So finally, in 2008, the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company unknowingly performed Hamlet with a human skull. That, we know, is a lie. The company knew full well they were performing with a human skull. (laughs) And they knew whose skull it was. Ooh, whose skull was it? So this story starts back in 1935. Robert Krautheimer was a Jewish kid born in Warsaw. This is not going to go well. 1935? Yeah. His mother was a pianist, and she taught him how to play from the age of four. When World War II broke out, his family was moved into the Warsaw ghetto. A couple of years into that, Robert's grandmother smuggled him out with forged identity papers. On his papers, she put the name of her favorite composer. So Robert Krautheimer became Andrei Tchaikovsky. He and his grandmother would spend the next three years on the run around Warsaw, and Tchaikovsky never saw his mother again. It's a sad story. It is a really sad story. Tchaikovsky would go on to be one of the world's great pianists. He recorded Chopin, Haydn, and Mozart, and performed all around the world. He was brilliant, and as you might imagine with somebody with that history, very temperamental. When The Guardian wrote about him in 2016, they described Tchaikovsky as eccentric, brilliant, willful, unstable, depressive, erratic, witty, and morose. That's a lot to carry around. It has a lot to carry around and put through the piano, Mm -hmm. right? Beyond piano, he had two other passions. One was composition and the other was Shakespeare. He set seven of Shakespeare's sonnets to voice and piano, and he completed an opera, The Merchant of Venice, based on Shakespeare's play. And he did a little acting on the side. 
And he did all of that in 47 years. Wow. Yeah. He died in 1982 from colon cancer. Aw. Yeah. When he died, he left his body to science and his head to the Royal Shakespeare Company. (laughs) He wanted his skull used as a prop. That is very cool. Uh Uh-huh. For many, many years, nobody would touch it. When Mark Rylance did Hamlet in 1989, he rehearsed with Tchaikovsky's skull, but people were scared that the head would take all the attention and also maybe, ooh. (laughs) And it wasn't until 2009 that Andrei Tchaikovsky's skull made its debut. David Tennant was playing Hamlet, and the company decided to use it. They didn't tell anyone, Mm -hmm. but eventually word got out. And then that company came forward and said, yeah, okay, we've decided to stop using it. Don't worry about it. But they lied. David Tennant continued to use Tchaikovsky's skull through the run. Here's what David Tennant sounds like talking to a man who's been dead 20 years. Yes. Poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest. Of most excellent fancy. He hath borne me on his back. A thousand times. If you'd like to see David Tennant's Hamlet, it is available. The BBC recorded it, complete with Tchaikovsky's skull. It got rave reviews, and it includes Sir Patrick Stewart and a strong, scary performance as Claudius. It is on Amazon Prime. That's two truths and a lie. Are you ready to talk about books? I'm very excited about my books. Me too. My first recommendation is Shadow Play. By Joseph O'Connor. This is a historical novel set in the late 1800s in London. It tells the real life story of the mercurial friendship between Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula, and the two most famous actors of the time, Henry Irving and Ellen Terry. So let's imagine London around this time. The narrow streets and cobblestone alleys are dimly lit by gaslight. All of the hard surfaces and thick fog play tricks on your ears, yeah, warping the near-constant sound of horse-drawn carriages and heels clacking on the streets. Beggars and prostitutes haunt the shadows, and so does Jack the Ripper. But it wasn't all bad. (laughs) As it is today, London was a cultural hub with art galleries, music halls, and theaters. In the late 1800s, the theater was the Lyceum. It was managed by the actor Henry Irving. He oversaw all aspects of the productions. This was his baby. He did the casting and directed the shows. He supervised sets and lighting, and he starred in the plays. Bram Stoker was his right-hand man. And Henry's female acting counterpart and sometime lover was Ellen Tracy. It's hard to come up with a modern equivalent for this acting power couple because they weren't just stars. They were also tremendous actors. It's like if Meryl Streep had the fan base of Taylor Swift. Right. They routinely tackled Shakespeare. Ellen's Ophelia to Henry's Hamlet was the stuff of legends. They also did Twelfth Night, Henry VIII, King Lear, and Much Ado About Nothing. So they could do comedy and drama. Henry was so beloved and respected, he was knighted in 1895 for his services to the stage. And the three of them, Bram, Henry, and Ellen, were like a braid. Their lives were all woven together. This novel explores the real-life affection and rivalries among them that shaped their work and the life of the Lyceum Theater. So this author, Joseph O'Connor, his writing is like, the word equivalent of a plush stage curtain. It's very rich and velvety and kind of envelops you in this world. He does a brilliant job of making you feel like you've been transported to Jack the Ripper's London. And the peek backstage at the working theater is fantastic. Oh, that's fun. At different times throughout the story, the actors, Henry and Ellen, talk about their craft how they transform themselves into their characters, the tricks they use to change their voices and the way they carry themselves to embody another person. Ellen shows Bram her journal of people that she's sketched because she watches people to like pick up their expressions and the way they tilt their head. 
If you're interested at all in how good actors become someone else for a while, this is really good stuff. In real life and in this book, Bram loved and admired Henry to the point that it was detrimental to him. This was not a healthy relationship. One of Stoker's biographers said that Henry was the most important love relationship of Bram's adult life. Mm. But Henry was tough to be around. He was narcissistic. He drank too much. He was insecure. He was capricious in his decision-making. He had a very short temper. He was like a larger-than-life character who sucked up all of the air in the room. Yeah. He is the stereotype of the pampered, babied, needy, talented actor. But he was Bram's idol and Bram's boss, which made things really tricky. Right. Bram spent a lot of time just internalizing the uncertainty and the fear that Henry inspired in him. But those feelings had to come out somehow, and they did in a major way. Scholars have agreed for a long time that Dracula is based on Henry Irving, this man who was his friend, but also sucking the life out of him. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Larger than life, dramatic, Mm -hmm. egotistical. Handsome. Dangerous. Charming. Something I found really delightful is that throughout the book, we see where Bram got other ideas for his vampire novel. I don't want to give them all away so you can find the Easter eggs on your own. But for example, there's a stagehand named Jonathan Harker. In the book, Jonathan Harker is the lawyer that fights Dracula. Exactly. The actors in the theater use garlic to fend off sore throats. Oh, really? That's an old trick, I guess. That's funny. There's a photo of the actress Sarah Bernhardt sleeping in her coffin. So like Graham kind of grabbed all those ideas like a magpie with shiny things and sprinkled them into his story. There are a bunch of them. The book is so much fun for that. I love an epistolary novel. I think Dracula is one of the best. This book pays homage to that structure. It opens with a letter from Bram to Ellen Terry explaining that what follows is his collection of papers that he kept throughout all of their theater years. So the story unfolds through his diaries and newspaper accounts and some sections that are narrated by Ellen. I just love that nod to Bram Stoker's story. Yeah. It's very meta and cool. So aside from the very interesting story of the theater and how Dracula came to be and their friendships, this book is filled with sharp observations about how we define our self-image and the way that love can help us like lift that up or tear it down. Yeah. It explores friendship and sexuality and the challenges of being a creative person. And it gives you a chance to hang out in London with Oscar Wilde and famous actors and a ghost that haunts the theater. That Shadow Play by Joseph O'Connor. I should also mention that a few years before he wrote this novel, the author also wrote a 90-minute radio play called Vampire Man that covers the same characters and settings. It's available on the BBC website, and I'll put the link in show notes. We're going deep with the Shakespeare this episode, and we're just going to keep going. We are. Yeah. I mean, you could do worse. You could. (laughs) (laughs) A few years ago, Penguin Random House asked a group of authors to retell Shakespeare for a more modern audience. And they called it the Hogarth Shakespeare series. Several high-caliber authors took them up on that. For example, Pulitzer Prize winner Ann Tyler rewrote The Taming of the Shrew as a funny modern family drama set in Baltimore. That sounds fun. Joe Nesbo, the wildly popular Scandi noir author, rewrote Macbeth. Oh. Yeah. He frames it as a violent story of a cop going bad. I mean, violent story is accurate. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the power dynamic is right, too. Mm -hmm. There are five other titles in that series, but the one I wanted to talk to you about is Hagseed by Margaret Atwood. This is a retelling of The Tempest. It centers around Felix Phillips. When the book starts, Felix is the artistic director of the Makeshewig Theater Festival. The Makeshewig Theater Festival is made up, but it seems like a thinly veiled version of the Stratford Festival in Ontario, Canada. The festival is a big deal, and the local community depends on it. And Felix has all let it go to his head a bit. Mm. Felix is a very theatrical man. He is flamboyant. 
He likes big, over-the-top presentations. He's known for putting on a version of Macbeth that has chainsaws on stage. (laughs) He's middle-aged or so. His world revolves around the theater and his found family there. He's also known some grief. He's smart. He knows his stuff. In my mind, Felix is played by a 1995 version of Ian McKellen. Oh, that's good casting. Yeah. And then one day, Felix is betrayed. Tony, the business manager for the theater, a man who's referred to multiple times as a devious, twisted bastard. (laughs) Tony wanted Felix out. In my head, Tony is played by either Oliver Platt or Nathan Lane. Oh, I like both of those, too. (laughs) Oliver Platt in everything, please. Yeah. Tony got the board to agree to dump Felix. Uh, he was too much of a liability, and Felix is fired in in a security will walk you to your desk and then to your car kind of way. Terrible. Yeah. Felix is destroyed, and he spends several years sulking, living in a cabin off of a dirt road. He eventually gets himself back together a little bit, and he gets a job, and his new job is running a theater program at the Fletcher County Correctional Institute. He is helping convicts put on Shakespeare. And that goes well. And then one day, Felix is given a chance for sweet, sweet revenge. Yes. (laughs) Finally, he will get his retribution against that devious, twisted bastard, Tony. (laughs) And it's going to be beautiful. I suspect you don't need me to tell you that Margaret Atwood is pretty clever. There are at least four versions of The Tempest in this story. There's the original Shakespeare's script. There's the one that Felix was working on before he was fired. There's the version that he mounts to get his revenge. And then there's Felix's story itself, which has many, many parallels to the original. And yet you don't need to know The Tempest to enjoy this book. I didn't know it when I started. To help, Atwood has written a three-page summary of the play in the back with everything you need to know. Do not be like me. I found this right up when I had finished the book. (laughs) Which was a little frustrating, but Wikipedia also worked fine. I enjoyed the story here, but like Shakespeare, the plot might not be the main draw. What I liked most about this book was the different characters discussing their relationship to the theater. Mm -hmm. I'm a little hesitant to tell you that there are a few chapters in the back of the book where prisoners present what they think happens after the curtain falls on the Tempest. They go through each character, and that might sound dull. And if you had told me that I would enjoy reading that, I would have called you a liar. I think that sounds fantastic. <laughs> but it, yeah, that I mean, that's what happened. It was really charming. There was something about the mix of characters in the book and how they present the ends of Shakespeare's characters. And they do that in different ways. One of them does a dance, <laughs> cool. which is described. The stories they invent are not obvious, which made me think that either Margaret Atwood is a genius or she did a lot of research trying to figure out what people thought happened to those characters. Both. Probably both. Another nice bit is that Felix allows the prisoners to rework Shakespeare. The actors could rewrite their characters' parts in their own words to make them more contemporary, but they can't change the plot. So I'm going to read you a bit of the opening of the book. It's, I think, the first chapter. The chapter heading says, Wednesday, March 13th, 2013. And then it says, the house lights dim, the audience quiets. On the big flat screen, jagged lettering on black, The Tempest by William Shakespeare with the Fletcher Correctional Players. On screen, a hand-printed sign held up to the camera by the announcer wearing a short purple velvet cloak. In his other hand, a quill. The sign says, A Sudden Tempest. Announcer. What you're going to see is a storm at sea. Winds are howling, sailors yowling, passengers cursing him because it's getting worse. Going to hear screams, just like a bad dream. But not all here is what it seems. Just saying. And now we're going to start the playing. <laughs> I could not be more in. I know. I want to see that show so bad. 
for me, this was a really playful, joyous ride through the Tempest. It's also a great reminder of what makes the theater so personal and universal at the same time. I really enjoyed it. It is Hag Seed by Margaret Atwood. I'm going to tag on and say that I also read a book that plays with the plot of The Tempest for our Grease episode. Oh, right. It's called Rough Magic by Mary Stewart. I referred to it as Greek Island Gothic. There's a sprawling shadowy mansion, a secret cave in underground cellars, a deadly fight on a boat in an epic storm, a missing diamond ring, a possible murder, romance, trickery, and a magical dolphin. One of the characters is a very dramatic, well-respected stage actor. It could be really fun to pair these two books up because The Tempest subtly threads through this rough magic. Yeah, you could read the play and then these two books. And then you're an instant expert. (laughs) My second recommendation is A Bright Ray of Darkness by Ethan Hawke. If you're of a certain age, you might know Ethan Hawke as I do. The scruffy, grungy, charming character Troy Dyer in the 1994 movie Reality Bites. Hello, you've reached the winter of our discontent. What was it about that movie that was so defining at the time? I mean, it was just Gen X in a nutshell right there. But while I haven't been paying attention, Ethan Hawke has been writing well-received fiction for decades. He's written six novels, and all of them have at least four-star reviews. Wow. I don't know why, but now I am all invested in my Gen X buddy's literary. (laughs) Go, Ethan. He's not really an underdog, but I feel like he is and I'm rooting for him. So here's the setup. Yep. A young, good-looking movie star named William Harding is making his Broadway debut in a production of Shakespeare's Henry IV. He's the only movie star in this stage production. As he's about to start rehearsals for the show, the news breaks that the dum-dum cheated on his gorgeous, super-famous rock star wife. Mm. He is used to being adored and catered to everywhere he goes. Now, he's getting attitude from the cab driver who picks him up from the airport, who gives him a hard time all the way into Manhattan. And he's getting pity from the front desk clerk at the hotel that he has to call home for a while. When he walks into the hotel, the clerk says, Wow, look who it is. Hester Prynne herself. (laughs) His personal business is all over the tabloids. It's a mess. It's worth noting that there are parallels to real life in this setup. In 2003, Ethan Hawke was also the only film star in a stage production of Shakespeare's Henry IV in New York. And around the same time, he went through a very public breakup with Uma Thurman amid rumors that he'd been unfaithful. So he has done his research for this work. He has. (laughs) But this isn't an indulgent, poor me, tell-all memoir pretending to be a novel. Yeah. To his credit, it doesn't feel like that at all. This is a legitimately gripping story about self-worth and the value of art to guide us through dark times in our lives. It follows our would-be hero, William, from his first rehearsal to closing night of the show. Here's some things I loved about this book. It's packed with everyday details of what it would be like to work on a professional production, Mm. to have the thing that you are doing today be getting to that performance at night. Right. I'm a little obsessed with this idea whenever we go to see a Broadway show or see a play with professionals, because it's different when you're working in amateur theater, like you're shoehorning that into your life. Right. But for the professionals, like this is their that's job. The that's yep. the thing. And that is fascinating to me. Yeah. So with William, we get to go to the script read through the first time and rehearsals and fight training because there's a lot of sword play in Henry the Fourth. Right. We see his rituals that he repeats in the countdown to the curtain each night, which is pretty cool. Yeah. 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. There is this bit that I loved that happens right before the premiere of the show as one of the last private acts as a cast before they have to perform for the public. They chart out and rehearse the curtain call. Oh. And I'd never thought about this before, but like the politics and the ego management and the pacing and all of that was just mm, fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. If you like reading about how people do their work, you will love this book. 
Ethan Hawke said, the book is basically everything I've learned about the theater in the past 35 years of work jammed together as if it all happened in one fictional production. I have to admit, Shakespeare is not my first go-to when I think of entertainment, but smart, enthusiastic, insightful people who love Shakespeare make me love Shakespeare. Yeah. At an early rehearsal in the book, the director is rallying the cast, explaining that they will act as a company, not a bunch of stars. And then he says this. Shakespeare isn't beautiful. It isn't poetic. Shakespeare is the greatest mind of the theater ever. Shakespeare is nature, like Niagara Falls or the Aurora Borealis, the Grand Canyon. Shakespeare is life, and life, if it is to be a great life, is not meek. Life is full of blood, piss, sweat, tears, and I want to see that all on stage. Some people kind of half chuckled. Don't laugh. We will do it. I want the audience to smell you. When your friend dies, I want to hear your tears smack the floor. When you fight, I want to feel adrenaline slip through my bloodstream. Violence electrifies a room. I want our fights to be so real that people think about leaving the theater. And I want no one to get hurt. That is the razor's edge that we will walk. We can do it because we are serious craftsmen and artists, and our life is dedicated to something larger than ourselves. I mean, I was ready to jump up and spring into service. I'm like, yes. As you might expect in a story about an indulgent, impulsive movie star, there's a lot of sex and drugs and booze and questionable decisions. Yeah. But it's all in service to themes that really resonated with me. Acting as a profession challenges people to be in the present. Right, to really listen to the actors around them and to engage their senses in the moment and to try not to control the outcome. That is also true of life, yeah. right? The show and life are best when you let go and exist in the moment. William also wrestles with the question of how and how much he values himself, which is also very relatable. So even though on paper his description should be annoying, white, young, rich, good-looking, immature. Right. He's a very endearing narrator, and he drew me into his world. Like, you understand him even when you don't like what he's doing. When he was sad, I felt it. When he drank too much, my cheeks got hot with, like, secondhand embarrassment. When showtime was approaching, I had butterflies in my stomach. Like, it's very immersive. I read this on the page in one afternoon. And then I found out, of course, the audiobook is narrated by Ethan Hawke. Oh, Hawk. sure, yeah. <laughs> so if you want to hear the story directly from his mouth, I listened to a clip and it sounds really good. That's A Bright Ray of Darkness by Ethan Hawke. My second book is The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows Are Built by Jack Viertel. I'm going to go through this review quickly because while I was researching this book, I found two other things I wanted to tell you about. I'll do that at the end here. The author of this book, Jack Viertel, is a producer, director, and author. Some of the shows he helped bring to Broadway are Into the Woods, Angels in America, and Dear Evan Hansen. Viertel is an old pro who worked Broadway for decades. And for much of that time, he did what he described as handicapping musicals. He would leave New York, he'd go out into the world, he'd see shows, and he would recommend which ones should come to Broadway to his business partners. That sounds like really fun research. Yeah. He also taught a class at New York University for most of a decade, and this book is the result of that class. When I first got this book, I had assumed it was going to be how shows are produced. Right. First, there's an idea, then a script, then these guys are working on the music, and then we bring in the choreographer, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. This is not that. This is a book about the structure of a musical and how musicals work as story. So first, there's the opening number. Either the entire cast or one person introduces the audience to the show and sets expectations for what's to come. If you fail to do that, the night is over before it started. People need to know what this show's about. So you think about Tradition from Fiddler on the Roof or Alexander Hamilton from Hamilton. Sound of Music. Right. Julie Andrews, Spinning and Singing. Yeah. 
Then, usually, there's a number that expresses the main character's desires. An example of that might be the line, All I want is a room somewhere far away from the cold night air from My Fair Lady, or I hope I get it from Chorus Line. And Viertel goes through the structure of a musical all the way to the curtain call, explaining what typically happens and why. He tells stories about shows that have succeeded, but he also tells us stories about shows that fail and speculates about why they did. Uh, For instance, he was a part of an attempt to bring the 1998 movie The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler to Broadway. That show fails, he says, because the main character doesn't want anything at the beginning of that show. (laughs) Oh, that's true. When the curtain goes up, he is a wedding singer who wants to be a wedding singer. The movie can get away with that. There are other things to entertain us there. In a musical, it is too big of a burden. The audience needs to know what the main character wants, and it has to be big, and they have to be on for the ride right now. And after he's gone through this structure, Viertel includes a final chapter that has his recommendations for the best recordings of the 47 shows he's analyzed, and 20 more musicals he describes as can't be ignored even though they are not quoted in the book. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I know. That strikes me as a real fan, right? Here's the 50 I love, and here's 20 more I couldn't leave out. Yeah. The book sent me to Spotify and YouTube frequently, and it made me want to go see more musicals. I was happy to take that ride. Maybe you would be, too. It's The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows Are Built by Jack Viertel. Here are the two things that I mentioned that I also wanted to tell you about. First, one of Jack Viertel's greatest accomplishments was being the artistic director of the Encore series for 20 years. I did not know what the Encore series was. No, I don't know. Or is. So Encores is a theatrical series dedicated to performing rarely heard American musicals. So it is a second chance for some great theater. The Encore people will put together a show that most people haven't heard and then mount it for a week or two. They've done musicals by Rodgers and Hart and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and so on. The series has been happening for almost 30 years. Wow. So if you're a New Yorker, I'm not telling you anything new. (laughs) Encores is credited with bringing Chicago back to Broadway, where it's been running since 1996. And they get some big names to do the show. They just finished an 11-day run of Stephen Sondheim's Into the Woods with Sarah Bareilles and Neil Patrick Harris. If you're curious about any of that, we'll put a link in the show notes. Maybe you can go see a classic musical when you're in New York. And the other thing I wanted to mention, another delight of New York City, is Marie's Crisis Café. They bill themselves as the world's only acoustic sing-along show tunes piano bar. (laughs) If you're imagining a room full of people gathered around a piano, beer in hand, belting out in drunken, raucous harmony, you are in the right neighborhood. I know that's not going to appeal to everybody, (laughs) but if that sounds like something you might want to do, the bar is located in Greenwich Village. There's no cover. It's a two-drink minimum, and pianists are there every single night from 6 p.m. until at least 3 (laughs) a.m. That sounds like fun. Yeah. My final recommendation is If We Were Villains by M. L. Rio. This is a mashup of dark academia, theater, and a closed circle of suspects mystery, which longtime listeners will know, a lot of my favorites right there. Yeah. Once I started reading it, it was almost impossible to stop, and I've read it three times. Wow. Rather than tell you the setup myself, I'm going to read you the opening of chapter one. It is a very strong start. Okay. The time, September 1997, my fourth and final year at Delacour Classical Conservatory. The place, Broadwater, Illinois, a small town of almost no consequence. Enter the players. There were seven of us then, seven bright young things with wide, precious futures ahead of us, though we saw no farther than the books in front of our faces. We were always surrounded by words and books and poetry, all the fierce passions of the world bound in leather and vellum. I blame this in part for what happened. The portentous what happened (laughs) is in reference to a tragedy on opening night of their senior play. Oh. This book is the story of what happened before and after that fateful night. I also really appreciate that it says there were seven of us then. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So good. That is a powerful two sentences. Yeah. Our narrator is Oliver. 
He's an acting student at Deliker. He's part of a group of seven friends, all actors. They've been together since they started at the school three years ago. And they each align with a dramatic archetype. So there's a hero, sidekick, villain, tyrant, temptress, and ingenue. These are not only the roles they usually end up assigned to in their plays. They're the roles that they fill in life, too. At one point, Oliver says, I seem doomed to always play supporting roles in someone else's story. Far too many times I had asked myself whether art was imitating life or if it was the other way around. Yeah. But this year, their final year, the teachers are pressing them to dig deeper into understanding themselves and to step outside their comfort zones in the characters that they play. And that has repercussions in their real lives. I love a found family. And this crew of seven friends is like a found family on the bad side of a mirror, like a shadow family. They have very intense friendships. There's flirting and hookups, fighting and shifting loyalties, old grudges that they never talked about, and stupid things that they do out of insecurity. But also, they can't let go of each other. That lines up with my experience with theater kids. Yeah, same. One of the things they have in common is that they're all obsessed with Shakespeare. Their program focuses on doing Shakespeare plays, and they are constantly sprinkling phrases from his plays and poetry into everyday conversation. This affectation is (laughs) amusing, but also very pretentious, (laughs) but also a little endearing. Yeah. But then you realize that they use Shakespeare's words instead of their own, in place of their own. The division between who they are and who they're playing is very blurry. Yeah. Do they even know their own thoughts and feelings? Right. At one point, the villain becomes completely unhinged and will only speak in Shakespeare lines. And that is very chilling. Yeah. He is disconnected from reality. ML Rio does a brilliant job of creating an unsettled atmosphere. We know from the beginning that something is going to go terribly wrong. It's got a real Chekhov's gun thing about it. Yeah. Mel's throwing a theater term in there. Chekhov's gun is the idea that if you show a gun in act one, you need to use it by the end of the show. Everything included has to have a purpose. Yeah. The physical setting of this story is perfect. The fourth year drama students live in a campus annex called the castle. It's isolated and spooky. They always have a fire going in the fireplace. There's an ominous lake and a forest nearby. Like you can hear the wind blowing and the leaves rustling. Yeah. Throughout the year, the students put on very imaginative performances of Shakespeare plays. So for example, on Halloween night, they perform Macbeth in the woods and the lake. But none of them know who is playing who. It's sort of like a flash mob. They know their own lines, but until they run into and interact with the right person, they don't know who's performing each role and neither does the audience. Oh. Really cool and effective and unsettling. Yeah. At Christmas, they put on Romeo and Juliet in the midst of a masked ball. So I feel like ML Rio just like really explored the imagination of how you could work these plays into different settings. Right. I really love this book, both for just the unrelenting suspense, but also the insight it offers into acting. One of my favorite things about watching an actor is how different they look when they're playing a role and when they're just speaking as themselves. That is magic to me. And I always wonder how hard it is to turn that gift on and off. So it's a dark kind of fun to read this book and see just how perplexing it could be to your own sense of self if you are constantly pretending to be somebody else. Right. I said earlier I've read this three times. To be more accurate, I've listened to it three times. I 100% recommend this audiobook. The writing is great on the page, but the narration is performed by an American stage actor named Robert Petkoff. He's known for his work in Shakespeare productions. So when all of the kids are sprinkling Shakespeare into their conversation, it sounds really good. And he's American, and so are the kids. So you're getting Shakespeare with an American accent, which we don't really hear that often. 
you know, British audiobooks are usually done by people with British accents. So it's really effective to hear this American actor delivering Shakespeare as a teenager. Yeah. You don't need to know the Shakespeare plays to enjoy this book. But if you read a brief synopsis, like maybe hit up Wikipedia for the plays you're not familiar with, you'll find more of the underlying connections between what the students are doing and what's happening in the plays that they're performing. But this is in no way a homework book. This is like pedal to the metal thriller with smart things to say about identity and obsession. It's If We Were Villains by M.L. Rio. Those are five books we love set in the theater. Visit our show notes at strongsenseofplace.com for links and details. There we will show you Patrick Stewart talking about the Macbeth curse and Indonesian shadow puppets and videos of people enjoying themselves at Marie's Crisis Cafe with notes on how you can get there yourself. I should also mention there are a lot more types of international theater that I wanted to include in my pretend theater festival, and we just didn't have enough time. We didn't get to talk about no theater in Japan or the Filipino musicals known as Sarsuela, or Nigeria's Yoruba Theater that combines drumming, dance, and mime. If you're curious about any of those, you might want to join our Patreon. I'm going to be sharing more about international theater there over the next two weeks. Mel, where are we headed for our next episode? We're traveling to East Africa to get curious about Kenya. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>